esoteric teachings on reincarnation and consciousness, simple teachings on compassion and ethics. As principal English translator of His Holiness, the 14th Dalai Lama of Tibet, Geshe Thupten Jinpa finishes the Dalai Lama's sentences. Under the circumstances, uh, you must protect. Protect. So there is a kind of a guarding and protecting and nurturing of the body. And then, uh, and then also perfection of those resources and body. And then uh, increasing and enhancing their... Meet this philosopher and former monk, now a husband and father of two daughters, and hear what happens when the ancient tradition embodied in the Dalai Lama meets science and life. One thing that I cherish about the experience of translating for him is the joyful state of mind I can automatically get into. But when I try to cultivate that state of mind in my own quiet sitting meditation, it's tougher. And this is, of course, a tremendous source of energy and enthusiasm. And also, it's a constant reminder to me that ordinary people can strive to that kind of state of mind. So that I find most transformative. I'm Krista Tippett. This is On Being from APM American Public Media. Thupten Jinpa's life story parallels the tumultuous modern history of the Tibetan people. In 1959, the then 23-year-old Dalai Lama escaped Lhasa in secrecy under fear of capture by Chinese troops. Thupten Jinpa's parents followed one year later with their four-year-old son and his two siblings in tow. He entered a monastery as a boy and later studied philosophy and religion at Cambridge. I spoke with him in 2010. These days, Thupten Jinpa lives in Montreal, picking up from there at regular intervals to accompany the Dalai Lama on his extensive public engagements. I know that you were too young to remember that flight from Tibet that you went on with your parents and following um, His Holiness, but... I wonder if you grew up with a sense from that experience um, of what Tibetan Buddhism meant or, or a sense of a special responsibility to this tradition because of that life experience. I don't think I can say exactly when this sense of responsibility kind of dawned on me, but perhaps one of my earliest memories from my childhood was from this boarding school, which was uh, in Simla, in North mm-hmm. India. Uh, it was a smallish school. Um, and uh, one of my earliest memories is really the visit of His Holiness mm. uh, to this school and um, a whole host of uh, Indian uh, security officials came, police um, and a couple of hours earlier. And I remember playing marbles with them. That I remember <laughs> very, very clearly. Right. It was a big deal for the mm-hmm. school, you know. And, um, and fortunately, a boy and a girl was chosen to offer him traditional Tibetan mm. white scarf and I happened to be chosen the, as the boy. I don't know why, but after His Holiness had this ceremony and we were walking, you know, from one place to another, you know, across the entrance um, outside. Um, I remember actually walking, holding his hand. I mean, so these are the kind of mem- very, very early memories I have. I wonder what, what place um, His Holiness had in your imagination, even from that young age, you know, looking in from the outside, he is such a complex, there are all these aspects to what he represents and who he is, right? On the one hand, he's a national figure of the Tibetan people. Um, 
on the other hand, uh, he is a reincarnated lama. On the other hand, he is, uh, as he likes to say, a simple Buddhist monk. Did you think of him as human, divine? I mean, can you put that into words? Because I, I don't think, think there's an equivalent in Yeah, I think it's very difficult um, to really kind of fully articulate the complexity um, of you know, a Tibetan, a t- kind of, mm-hmm. you know, someone like myself, um, even after all these years of working for him so closely to really describe the full range of the complexity of, you know, my relationship with him and my perception of him. Uh, even at a very, very early age, um, I remember very, very clearly that there was on my part a tremendous kind of, you know, a sense of connection with him. I mean, I don't know why, maybe... You know, as a kid, I saw him as a father figure or, you know, and, and partly, you know, he's got this wonderful smile mm-hmm. and which probably for a young kid is, is very comforting. Uh, growing up later as a monk in a monastic university, then, of course, I had the opportunity to appreciate the more sophisticated aspects of his personality as someone who has gone through the classical Buddhist education, someone who is a deep thinker. As, you know, erudite in the, you know, the most subtle aspects of technical Buddhist philosophy and mm-hmm. textual scholarship and all of this. You know, of course, you know, as Tibetans, we, there is a kind of a mythic dimension to our relation to His Holiness because right. he's not just an individual person. You know, he kind of represents a whole institution right. of the Dalai Lama. And in a sense, we, you know, at some subconscious level in the person of the Dalai Lama, we kind of bring together all the inherited wisdoms of the successive Dalai Lamas. And, and so there is that mythic aspects of, you know, at least, you know, my perception of him, um, which brings a certain richness. And then later, of course, you know, I had the opportunity and honor to be able to serve him, you know, much more closely as his personal translator. And then, of course, you know, you you read about the descriptions of the Bodhisattva in the in the scriptures, mm. but it's very rare you see one. Mm. But when you see someone like him, whose entire being is dedicated to the welfare of other sentient beings, and who does it day in and day out. And uh, so that that was for me very, very, very inspiring. Actually, I mean, much more so than his sophisticated, refined hmm. philosophy. Um, you know, I would like to talk to you. I mean, just even with this image you just gave of debating in monasteries, and you didn't you enter a monastery at the age of eleven? Is that right? Yes. Yeah. That's a whole layer of Tibetan Buddhism that is unknown in the West and also that can't, there's no space for that to find expression in the sure. Dalai Lama's public appearances. Sure. So I would like to draw you out a little bit on that. Uh, so, you know, as you say that His Holiness belongs to this and you belong to this vast, in part very esoteric metaphysical world. I mean, just for starters, for example. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've pointed out that meditation is an English word. And that, he, that the word meditation, that, that everyone knows now, in fact, doesn't carry sure. all of the nuance. In, in some ways, um, when you see terms like meditation become popularized, it sort of becomes a victim of its own success. Mm-hmm. The fact that it gets to be popularized means it has become mainstream, but 
on the other side, you have to pay a price for this. Mm -hmm. so going mainstream involves some process of kind of reduction where it sort of somehow ends up in this lowest denomination. So in the popular image, people tend to immediately think of meditation as someone sitting quietly, emptying the mind. But if you look at the original Sanskrit term, bhavana, and the Tibetan term, gom, from which this term meditation has, has been kind of being used now as, mm -hmm. a, as a translation, bhavana has the connotation of cultivation. It's like cultivating a field. So there is this mm -hmm. connotation of cultivation. And the Tibetan term gom has the connotation of familiarity, a process of familiarity. So, uh, and, and, and meditation can be, you know, as, as His Holiness often points out, analytic, where it's not simply sitting down and quieting your mind, but it can actually be a process where you use kind of discernment and move from stages and stages to kind of, in some sense, uncovering layers and layers. So there's to get to a, a knowledge point. that's being yes, acquired. Yes, exactly. But also meditation can be, you know, simply stilling the mind. So, of course, when we use in the popular English context, we use the word meditation, all of these nuances get left out. But it's probably part of the process. And at some point, the nuances will come back because in the in the end, um, you know, I, I I agree with the famous Wittgenstein dictum that you know the meaning of a word is its use. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today we're exploring subtleties of Tibetan Buddhism with Geshe Thupten Jinpa. He's a philosopher, former monk, and, since 1985, principal English translator and interpreter of the Dalai Lama. He's created a project to bring Tibetan Buddhism's classic texts into the world's languages. He's also involved in teaching and research at McGill University and at Stanford. And Thupten Jinpa is chairman of the Dalai Lama's Mind and Life Institute. This is an ongoing global project that brings scientists and Buddhist practitioners into dialogue with their very different approaches to human consciousness and knowledge. Tell me about the, the knowledge that comes through meditation. What? what? Well, it's not simply... Uh, I mean, the, the, the Tibetan tradition... Is, is a very complex tradition. Mm -hmm. And in some sense, you know, one of the main things that people have to bear in mind is that when people are kind of encountering a tradition such as Tibetan Buddhism, um, it's very different historically from, say, any of the monotheistic traditions that you see. Um, in the West, particularly in the West, through history, a process has taken place where there has been a kind of a gradual separation between spirituality or religion. Um, and then you have science, which has uh, mm -hmm. even further kind of, you know, now confining more and more to a, a worldview where your understanding of the world is based on what you can directly perceive or what you can infer on the basis of what direct experience can show us. Mm -hmm. So this kind of separation between science and philosophy and spirituality has not occurred in the context of Tibetan tradition, mm -hmm. Tibetan Buddhism. So Tibetan Buddhism is kind of an entire worldview. Now, because of that, 
you know, you cannot look at Tibetan Buddhism and say this is religion. For the same reason, you cannot say this is philosophy. Mm-hmm. Or nor can you say this is science. Of course, certainly not. Mm-hmm. But within that tradition, you have all the elements. So a monk's training involve kind of incorporating all of this, integrating all of this. So philosophy, you know, philosophical inquiry is driven by some kind of understanding of, you know, kind of ethical motivation and aimed at some kind of spiritual goal of, you know, enlightenment mm-hmm. or whatever you may want to call it, perfection. So, so that makes the training of a monk very, very sophisticated because you have to, you know, study all these aspects, the relationship between our perception and the world, and uh, um, the d- distinction between true knowledge and a mere belief and assumption. Mm. Um, you know, how does a language and thought relate to the actual reality? I mean, these are right. very, very esoteric <laughs> you know, <laughs> questions. But there is that link that you're right, has been severed, decoupled in the West between knowledge and goodness. Sure. You've also said that um, the Tibetan tradition then provides a novel response to this ancient Greek question of why knowledge doesn't translate into action. And what you just said helps explain that, that in fact things are never separated to begin with. Sure, partly that, but also partly in in the Eastern tradition. It's not just Tibetan tradition, but also uh, Indian tradition, classical Indian tradition in, in general. Um, there was always the role for meditation. And meditation can be seen as a kind of the link Mm -hmm. between kind of intellectual conscious knowledge and its translation into behavior. So the idea is you can begin with knowledge, but knowledge needs to be totally integrated into the being, into the very personality of the person, so that what comes out in response to a given situation would be something that is ethical, truly ethical, and the right thing to do. And that integration can be achieved through a process which we will call cultivation or meditation. As I remarked before, the, the, His Holiness the Dalai Lama's public teachings are very simple. Yes. Uh, by, of necessity. And yet he carries this weight and authority that transcends the words. Sure. And so what, what this helps me understand, and I was realizing this as I was reading you also in preparation for this, is the, that the experience of, of him is not just um, of the stripped-down teachings, but of the fruit of the teachings, yes, right? Yes, of, yeah. of the cultivation sure, sure. of this very complex sure, tradition. Sure, sure. Yeah. A very compelling thing about him is that when he talks about, you know, issues like compassion and sense of caring for others and recognition of the oneness of human family, mm-hmm. you know, there's a kind of a, a um, note of conviction that comes through, partly through his body language. Yes. And that's why it's, it's, it's very powerful. It's almost to be, tangible. Yeah, exactly. As it's much almost as kind it's of visceral. And, and the fact that he embodies these is what makes the interaction with him, even in these large public events, very, mm-hmm. very powerful. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, partly because he wants to really reach everybody, there's a kind of a deliberate simplification of the message. But partly it's also because he insists on communicating directly 
mm-hmm. with the audience mm-hmm. that you know he relies on his own command of English. I mean, his vocabulary is very rich, but then his ability to carry on with complex sentences mm-hmm. becomes more challenging. I mean, when you sit there and listen to him, it, it all seems very, you know, kind of uh, common sense. But on the other hand, I would argue that it's the commonsensical nature of his general talk that is most profound because in a sense he's he's making us think and not take for granted these things. For example, like one of the kind of memorable things he has said is that the fact that the, the kind of actions of affection, actions of love and care, caring, do not make headlines is because we take them for granted. Right, right. Which suggests that we expect people as normal to, as normal to behave in that manner. Mm-hmm. The fact that killing and violence makes headlines is because we don't expect normally people to behave in that manner. Yes, and but when they do, we are shocked. We and become very confused. By exactly, and and he is suggesting that by not being critically reflective we sometimes let ourselves driven by headline news mm-hmm. and the the sad cash kind of you know byproduct of that is that people become cynical thinking that oh we're such a horrible species mm-hmm. um, whereas he says he's saying that this is the opposite the fact that they are sensational that they are news making means that somehow in one in some way we don't expect fellow human beings to behave in those manners. Mm-hmm. So these kind of things are very powerful, actually. I mean, it's, we, you know, he's questioning many of our everyday assumptions. And he's saying, no, don't take them for granted. Um, been involved in in different ways in the mind life dialogues, I believe, which are these this extended dialogue that sure. His Holiness has hosted between scientists and spiritual thinkers, and you know what they've shown about how meditation does affect the brain. And I mean, this, these the research that's come out of that has really changed neuroscience, which is sure. very very uh, full of impact. But how have those uh, conversations and the learnings through them af- affected you? Have they mm, opened your mind up to knowing or thinking about things that you hadn't considered before? Well, it's difficult to say. Um, I mean, I, I, I had been fortunately um, fortunate to be part of the Mind and Life Dialogues uh, right from the beginning when it began. Um, I mean, one thing it has changed my mind is probably perhaps the way um, as a Buddhist scholar um, today I look at many of the mental processes. Mm. Uh, Of course, as a Buddhist philosopher, we do acknowledge that there are behavioral expressions of your mental states, Mm -hmm. but the brain was never really part of that there is picture. mind. Assume. Yeah, there's a mind, yes. and then there is mm-hmm. your behavior. And as a result of you know being part of these dialogues, I've come to appreciate how 
Western neuroscientific understanding of the brain's role in mental experience is fairly advanced. Mm. And uh, I've come to now, um, you know, accept that um, no discourse on mental phenomena that doesn't take into account the brain's role is going to be complete and comprehensive. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, you know, although I may not buy into completely the scientific agenda and the underlying assumption that in the end, all mental processes are reducible to biology, biology mm -hmm. and, you know, brain biological or biochemistry mm -hmm. um, or whatever it is, basically a physical uh, processes, um, which I know is a major assumption um, underlying neuroscience and much of Western life sciences um, in, in general. Um, you know, I, as a Buddhist thinker, I, I, I'm not convinced. Um, mm -hmm. My own feeling is that the problem of consciousness is going to remain. Uh, a philosopher called it the very hard problem. And I think at least for the foreseeable future, it is mm -hmm. going to remain a very hard problem. Mm -hmm. um, I can't it, quite see how in the end consciousness can be ultimately reduced to brain processes. But, but there's also still a distinction, or uh, you can ask the question in two ways, right? Whether there is a physical correlate to mental processes or even to what we call consciousness. Yes. Or whether they arise physically, whether they sure. are purely physical sure. phenomena. Sure. So... Uh, you know, this is something I, I would have asked His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Um, because of your belief in reincarnation, I mean, that sheds a whole new light on the matter of consciousness, right? Sure, because sure. presumably he is a, well, you, you say this, but, but it, there's a body, but there's something complete, in fact, sure. as you understand it, that completely transcends the body and moves from one body to another. Yes. Do you think, yeah. do you, is that a discussion um, in Tibetan um, circles? Well, not in the mind and life circles. No, but all in, his, in uh, response to the yeah. mind and life circles within Tibetan yes, tradition? Yes, of course, of uh -huh. course, of course. Um, I mean, the, 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 one of the, I mean, this is probably potentially an area where science and Buddhism may have uh, kind of an important divergence. Mm -hmm. um, for Buddhism, it's very important to at least acknowledge the possibility of consciousness that is, although on the manifest level of experience may be contingent upon the physical basis, which is the brain, mm -hmm. but at some ultimate level, there is a kind of an aspect of that experience of consciousness that is independent. And when you say consciousness, um, I mean, let's say again, if in, t in terms of the idea of reincarnation, I mean, it's more than awareness, it's also aspects of memory, right? I mean, what yes. do you think of? What is what is involved in human consciousness when you use that word? I think uh, at the fundamental level, uh, consciousness, um, I mean, maybe the term consciousness, uh, even in the English usage, uh, there's a certain ambiguity. Sometimes mm -hmm. uh, we refer to consciousness in the sense of being self-conscious. Mm -hmm. So sometimes people would argue that animals like rats are not conscious because they have no self-consciousness. But sometimes consciousness... I'm not sure how we know that. But. Yeah, exactly. But <laughs> yeah. sometimes um, people tend to use consciousness in a much more general sense as a way of contrasting uh, consciousness from 
inanimate material object. Right. So, so therefore, the ambiguity sentient. of the term, yeah, mm-hmm. sentient ambiguity of the term exists in English um, as as well as in in the Tibetan equivalent. But to put it very crudely, um, by consciousness, um, in in the Buddhist philosophy, we mean this primary phenomenon um, which give rise to all the more evolved conscious sensory and thought processes. So consciousness can be seen as a kind of a primary awareness, Mm. which is a kind of a basic property of a sentient being. Now, many of the more conscious part of that experience of mental life, say a specific memory Mm -hmm. of a place or a person or um, a very kind of, you know, technical knowledge of certain things, these are very contingent upon experience mm-hmm. of what you have. Which may be rooted in a body, yeah. right? Uh-huh. Um, but the underlying that all of this mental experience is, to use William James' terminology, a stream of consciousness. There is this kind of continuity mm-hmm. underlying all of this. And it is this stream that Buddhists would argue gets carried over from life after life. And when it passes on, it it goes on in a very, very rudimentary, basic level. But at the same time, it has all the capacity of expressing itself, you know, mm-hmm. into a more evolved form of consciousness. Mm. So just because you have experienced something in this life doesn't mean that you're going to be able to remember everything in the next life. But there might be some imprint of that. Sure, sure. It's true of Thupten Jinpa, as he said about the Dalai Lama, that his physical presence adds another layer to the experience of his ideas. And you can see that for yourself. We videotaped my hour with him along the edges of a conference on happiness with the Dalai Lama at Emory University. And it was a very different yet equally interesting experience to be on stage with Thupten Jinpa in his role as interpreter. Find links to these videos on our website, onbeing.org. There you can also find out how to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. On Facebook, we're at facebook.com slash onbeing. On Twitter, follow our show at beingtweets. Follow me at Krista Tippett. Coming up, Thupten Jinpa on bringing monastic training into his transition from monk to husband and father. I'm Krista Tippett. This program comes to you from APM, American Public Media. On Being is supported by Spirituality and Health magazine, exploring personal transformation and our connections with others, with feature interviews from Brene Brown to Eckhart Tolle. Available at Barnes & Noble and Whole Foods or online at spiritualityhealth.com. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, we're shining a light inside the metaphysical and human worlds of Tibetan Buddhism, which is personified in the Dalai Lama of Tibet. I'm in conversation with his principal English translator, Geshe Thupten Jinpa. He's a former monk, a philosopher, and a Buddhist scholar in his own right. 
We're discussing subtleties of this ancient tradition and what happens when it meets modern science and modern lives. Here he is at work with the Dalai Lama before a live audience of 4,000. So therefore, uh, we believe, we consider this body is something very very precious. So, uh, for example, in the, uh, there's a Buddhist practices that involve one's relationship with uh, an attitude towards uh, one's body, one's material resources, and also one's collection of virtues. And uh, in, in, con- in the connection to all of these, one needs, there, you know, there are different stages of practice that involve, first of all, kind of letting go. And then the second under stage... Under different circumstances. Under, di- under certain circumstances, uh, we have to... The circumstances as such, you see, give even your body, your organ, something really benefit, then give. But then... In other circumstances, uh, you must protect. Protect. So there is a kind of a guarding and protecting and nurturing of the body. And then, uh, and then also perfection of those resources and body, and then uh, increasing and enhancing their uh, capacity. So there's a complex relationship between you know, both body resources and one's virtues. I want to come back to uh, this very, very human encounter that I have with you, this experience that many people have of you when they um, experience His Holiness the Dalai Lama as his translator. But I have to say, having observed that a few times in a few different places, it feels much more like a, an intimate conversation that's happening between the two of you. Uh, I've, heard, I've even heard people describe it like a marriage, that you're completing his thought before he <laughs> finishes his sentence. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's more than just you interpreting words. And it, it feels like a, a friendship as well. Sure. You know, just going back to the story you told me about the awe you had for him, which I think that also comes through too, that sure, you, sure. a great reverence sure. comes through. But that, what, what is that like then to develop that relationship with this person? Uh, um, <laughs> I think when I'm actually uh, on stage um, assisting him um, as his interpreter, um, I actually kind of lose the sense of time um you know i um i mean fortunately because i've served in this capacity for now over 25 years um in many instances um it's not so much that he needs interpretation but it's basically you know he's thinking about something and he starts a conversation and my role is to simply follow through the you know kind of Follow that through that thought thought. to the end, yes. And then when he is struggling for a word, simply to suggest so that it doesn't, his struggle for the word doesn't stop his flow of thought. And that has been primarily the kind of the role that I, generally in the public events. But I mean, more technical nature, say like at science conference, then Mm -hmm. there will be a lot more interpretation. I mean, in my case, um, often... I'll be hearing something that he had already said before, but every time he says it, he says it in a completely different way. It's very fresh. And the fact that, you know, he truly lives it 
um, makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. And um, and the sheer joy of his personality, I mean, that right. person, that makes the experience very, very... I mean, for the, me, I mean, I'm almost in a meditative state when I, mm. you know, when I'm assist, translating for him. But it, it's a joyful meditative oh, state definitely. in which there's laughter as yeah, well. Yeah, definitely, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I suppose perhaps I was fortunate enough to establish this close working relationship in, with him when I was in my monastic years. And perhaps there was a, a sense of collegiality, um, of kind of camaraderie, you know, mm-hmm, as, as mm-hmm. you know, um, kind of fellow monastic members. And in fact, when I finally left the order and, and met him as a lay person, the first thing he said to me was, um, of course, as a senior member of the monastic community, you know, you have to understand that I was very saddened to lose someone like you. And then he said, uh, but at the same time, I've, I know you well, and I know you have thought about this question very seriously, and you haven't taken this decision lightly. Mm. So he said, you know, I trust your judgment. Mm. So that's the person he is, and he's, I mean, it's, it's interesting. What is interesting about His Holiness is that what are opposing characteristics in normal human beings, you tend to see them converging in him. Mm-hmm. Because normally when you see among religious people, people who are pious, people who are very, very devoted and self-disciplined, they tend to be also quite intolerant of others who don't read, you know, meet up to their standards. Mm-hmm. And I, I saw that particularly with His Holiness, um, that this was completely lacking. You know, when I was a monk, uh, I was never really pious. That was never my cup of tea. Um, I was <laughs> studious. I was, you know, curious. Uh, but piety was never really my cup of tea. So, and he, His Holiness gets up at 3.30 in the morning. You know, I, I even have difficulty getting up at 5.30 or 6. Um, so for a monk, that is fairly late. And, uh, but I never felt being judged by him, mm-hmm. you know, even when I was a monk, that somehow I wasn't living up to the standards that a monk was expected to be, you know. Right. And, and so this is amazing thing about it. And another thing is that normally when you see people who are, who have tremendous self-confidence, then humility is not really part of their characteristic. You know, there's with a powerful self-confidence comes a certain sense of pride and, and arrogance. Again, in his holiness, mm-hmm. his arrogance is completely missing. He's at a personal level very humble, but at the same time, tremendous self-confidence. Mm-hmm. Yes. So this is a, an interesting juxtaposition of what generally can be contrasting kind of, you know, characteristics. And one of the things that amazes me is that he has this gift to be fully present, you know, when he's talking to someone. And it doesn't really matter whether the person in the room that he's talking to is the president of the country or whether it is just an ordinary person. The way in which he treats just none of these mundane considerations, you know, have mm. any role. And that is an amazing, mm. you know, kind of quality because it's it's very, very difficult. Another thing is that in him, you know, I mean, you, you know that 
Tibetans particularly, you know, adore him, right. worship him, you know, one could argue. But none of this goes to his head. He remains humble mm-hmm. at a personal level. So these are what makes it amazing for me to have this opportunity to work for him. You know, after all these years, you know, you know, my affection for him, my admiration, my respect, mm-hmm. even my sense of awe remains undiminished. Yeah. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. My guest, Geshe Thupten Jinpa, has spent a quarter century as the Dalai Lama's English interpreter. He's a philosopher, a former monk, and a Buddhist scholar. And he's become a close collaborator on the Dalai Lama's dialogues with scientists and on his English-language writing projects. So you... uh, are married now, right? When yes, you left yeah. the monastic order. So how long have you been married? And uh, 14 years now. And you yeah. have two children, two is children. that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I heard this... Um, where did we read this? Anyway, in the, in the, when we were researching <laughs> you, <laughs> um, a question and answer with His Holiness, and someone asked him about anxiety and stress. And he said, well, even monks and nuns are caught in anxieties, and my advice is to live simply. And he said, my translator, Geshe Thupten Jinpa, can answer that question better. He was a monk. Now he's a father. <laughs> as a monk, he slept peacefully. Now as a father, his child wakes him up when, he, when he's asleep. <laughs> I, 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 I do wonder how... Well, one thing that occurs to me is that maybe as a parent, you also have a different insight into the longings and the stresses that people bring when they hear his teachings. Sure. And that this life, I mean, even I know I read about that he gets up at 3.30 and meditates for hours before sure. every day that I have children too. Sure. That feels like a dream. How has that uh, changed you, formed you, made you a different Tibetan Buddhist and a different uh, colleague to His Holiness? Um, I, I think you are right. I mean, I um, one thing that surprised me a bit uh, was actually... Uh, how challenging relationships can be. Actually. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, although in as a monk, you know, we live in a community, there are relationships, but relationships are more that of teacher to student and f- to fellow monks as, you know, colleagues. And, you know, then we have within the monastic community, the setup is we have smaller families within mm. which we mm. live together. But none of the, you know, the challenges that we have, you know, in 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 any given social context where there are more than two or three people, there's always going to be some challenges in the context of relationships because that's, you know, what we are. We're human beings. Mm-hmm. But I, what surprised me a little bit was how actually tougher it was uh, to have a marriage right. partner and, and to live in a truly, you know, sharing life. That was tougher. Uh, but on the other hand, I uh, truly... Uh, feel grateful that I went through the monastic life um, because the discipline it taught me um, and also, um, and it may sound strange, but a certain degree of emotional independence I found tremendously helpful. 
As a married man. As a married man. So that you don't dump all of your baggage on your spouse. Mm-hmm. And somehow when your spouse is annoyed or angry, that somehow to be able to relate to that in a more compassionate manner so that you don't take it personally. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, and and also it has partly to do with the, the kind of compassion training that we go through in the monasteries, you know, putting yourself in other people's shoes and trying to, you know, kind of enhance one's empathy. Mm-hmm. So these kind of things, um, the best way I could describe this is a some degree of emotional independence mm. so that your relationship is not completely this kind of uh, needy and, and this clingy and grasping. Mm-hmm. So that I, I, I was very happy to see that, you know, that my monastic years really helped. Mm-hmm. And also this basic discipline um, that I, as a monk, that I was able to bring into my um, life that was, but at the same time, um, what was very, very valuable as a lay person is the sheer joy and also the headaches that comes with, with being a parent, you mm-hmm. know. And, and, and His Holiness, of course, when he talks about cultivation of compassion, he says that um, because of the biological factor, you know, women are, you know, in some sense have greater propensity and greater sensitivity to others' pain. Therefore, you know, they can probably, there needs to be more women in the public role, particularly in the leadership role. And uh, so, you know, something similar to this is what I experienced as a father, that there is a certain visceral feeling of love and compassion to your children that as monks probably it will take ages to cultivate. Mm -hmm. Um, That, you know, as parents, you know, these comes very naturally. And, and, And you can see... That especially when the children are young, I mean, as they get, now my two girls are kind of teenage and preteen, so mm-hmm. it gets more complicated. But especially when they're very young, you know, their needs are very real and their needs are very urgent yes. and their needs are for now, you know. And, and so one thing I noticed is that in the parental love, the quality of unconditionality is very powerful. Mm-hmm. Whereas as a monk, you don't have that opportunity except towards your teacher, but then it, there is a kind of a hierarchy. You know, it's, it's, it's to someone who is an object of reverence. Right. So this really gives you uh, an experience of an expression of these things you were learning in the monastery. Oh, definitely. Especially the unconditionality mm-hmm. of, you know, this is truly selfless nature mm-hmm. of the parental love to your child. And this is powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what comes to mind as the most... Um, unexpected and formative experiences you've had as as a translator? This is my last question. Uh, um, well, that's one thing that I do um, kind of, you know, cherish deeply about the experience of translating for him is the, the quality of the joyful state of mind I can automatically get into mm. when I'm there. Mm. But when I try to cultivate that kind of state of mind in my own quiet sitting meditation, it's tougher. So probably it has a lot to do with the ambiance, the fact of being next to him, the sheer kind of presence of his kind of being and his compassionate energy, whatever it may be, but there is a kind of a, 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 a state of mind that I get into, you know, quite naturally. 
Um, and this is, of course, a tremendous source of energy and, and, and you know, enthusiasm. And also it's a constant reminder to me that ordinary people can strive to that kind of state of mind. So that probably for me, I find most transformative um, part of my work for him. But also the other part that I truly value is the opportunity to assist him very, very closely on some of the books that have had huge impact on the wider world. For example, Ethics for the New Millennium, yes. which is an attempt to articulate and envision what a secular approach to ethics would look like. That is an approach that is respectful to all the perspectives of the multiplicity of religions, but at the same time, you know, it's it does not require subscribed into any particular religious belief or faith. And that was done out of a, a, a sheer compassion by His Holiness for the world with um, in a concern that somehow we need to promote the culture of compassion. So I had the kind of, you know, a great opportunity to work with him closely on that. Another book that I assisted him was the book that told his story of many mm. years of engagement with science, scientists, universe in a single atom. You know, for me, the most compelling part of that book, in addition to personal stories, is the overarching theme, which is the need for taking compassion to be central in human motivation and not forgetting that science is one among many human activities that are ultimately aimed at betterment of humanity. Mm. Somehow that ethical consideration that underlied, you know, the, the whole scientific revolution in the early days must not be forgotten. Mm. And how the scientists, particularly as in, in the field of biogenetics, they are now creating new realities which human beings never confronted in the past, which has huge implications for the survival of the species and the world as a whole. He's appealed to the scientists to not to, to take these lightly, that they take the ethical responsibility of what they are doing seriously. And then just recently I finished, um, he finished a book that I assisted him on, which tells his story of more than 50 years of engagement with you know, other religious traditions oh. and it's uh, you know, uh, towards the true kinship of faiths, how the world's religions can come together. And again here, one of the powerful chapters in that book is the argument that despite all the diversity in the doctrinal beliefs and the metaphysical you know, idea theories underpinning those doctrinal beliefs, when it comes to the prescription of how to lead a good life, an ethical life, there is a tremendous convergence across all the major traditions. And these traditions were divided across time, across geography, across culture, across language. And all of these prescriptions, in the end, comes down to compassion. Mm. Compassion is the foundation of you know, moral teachings for all the old religions. And I think this is 
a powerful message that people in the religious world, as well as the secularist, need to heed. Because if this is true, and if we can convince ourselves that this is the foundation of all of our value system, and compassionate nature is a key aspect of, our, of who we are, then we, we will tell ourselves a different story. Mm. And if we tell ourselves a different story of who we are, then the chances are that we're going to try to act in accordance with that story. So, and I think these I feel tremendously privileged because as an ordinary person, I will never have a chance to have that kind of outreach to the world. But by serving him mm. you know, in the, for these books, I really have an opportunity to at least contribute to this process. So these are what I find you know, deeply transformative. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. It's a joy. Geshe Tupten Jinpa is the Dalai Lama's principal English translator and president of the Institute of Tibetan Classics in Montreal, Canada. He's also a participating scholar and executive committee member of Stanford University's Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education. You can listen again, download this program, or watch my entire conversation with Tupten Jinpa at our website, onbeing.org. There you'll also find video of him acting as interpreter in a public discussion on happiness with the Dalai Lama and three world religious leaders. While you're at onbeing.org, sign up for our weekly email newsletter. It's a capsule of what I'm reading, your exchanges with us on Twitter and Facebook, and words and images that grab our imagination in our digital spaces delivered to your inbox. Sign up at onbeing.org. You can also keep in touch with us at facebook.com slash onbeing. On Twitter, use the hashtag onbeing and converse with other listeners. I'm there, at Krista Tippett. Follow our show, at Being Tweets. On Being On Air and Online is produced by Chris Hegel, Nancy Rosenbaum, Susan Leem, and Stephanie Bell. Special thanks this week to the Center for the Study of Law and Religion at Emory University. Our senior producer is Dave McGuire, Trent Gillis is our senior editor, and I'm Krista Tippett. On Being is supported by the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org. And the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. On Being is extending its reach throughout America with support from Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private foundation. Next time, Greg Boyle, the fascinating and inspiring Los Angeles priest behind Homeboy Industries. Please join us. This is APM American Public Media.